Well, amen. Well, let me invite you, if you are so inclined, to please turn in God's Word to the book of Genesis, chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. And if you're using one of the Bibles there in front of you, it's going to be either page 37 or page 39. Genesis 46. And many of you probably know that after a break since last May 22nd of last year from my preaching from Genesis, uh, we are coming back to Genesis. A mere eight months to the day since we were last in the book of Genesis. But in God's providence, we've been covering a lot of different things. A lot of different things have gone on since then. And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll actually finish our uh, study of this book and preaching through this book. It is a foundational book of beginnings, and um, as you're turning there, I don't want to forget, once a month, we have a time for uh, children, our young ones, grades six and below, over in the Ed building across our driveway to share around God's Word and to sing. They're always welcomed uh, to remain in here for folks that desire, but we also have this time as well. So for those of you young ones who are going to be a part of that, those of you adults who are helping to lead and be involved with that, now's the time. So blessings to all of you. And the rest of us come to Genesis chapter 46. And this is indeed the foundational book of beginnings. And we're going to resume this morning with looking at chapter 46 and 47, which tell of Jacob, also known as Israel, and his entire family reuniting with his son Joseph in the land of Egypt and then relocating there from the land of Canaan. And what I want to do is read the opening four verses of chapter 46, verses 1 to 4, and then I'm going to pray as we seek God's help as we hear His eternal word. So let's look to chapter 46, verses 1 to 4. And we hear there, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And this is God's word. So let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. O God Almighty, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are our Father and Good Shepherd through faith in Jesus Christ, and we need your provision now. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that we might know you, that we might trust you, that we might enjoy you and obey you and walk confidently with you in all of your faithful care. And please help me, poor and needy as I am, to proclaim your word now faithfully and clearly. And please do all of this for your life-giving glory in Jesus Amen and amen. 
Well, let me start with a little bit of review since it has been some time. We're just going to look a little bit at some of the things that have happened previously in Genesis that bring us up to this place. The story of Genesis begins with the triune God's beautiful and flourishing creation of the heavens and the earth in which everything was very good. But despite God's blessing, creation quickly falls into sinful and deadly corruption as mankind, man and woman, created in God's image, rebel against their creator and become enslaved to God's curse. And with humanity now polluted with sinful rebellion in our very nature, Genesis is God's story of the beginnings of his promised plan to bring the bless or to bless undeserving sinners with salvation from our sin. And this salvation comes only by God's grace and it comes only and is received only through faith. Well, God reveals this promise plan through promises that he gives, his saving plan through these promises. And the first hint of this promise is found in chapter 3, verse 15, when God says to the devil, the deceitful serpent in the garden, he says there, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from that point on, what we find as the story of Genesis moves along are two parallel realities that we see. First of all, the reality of the increasing, intensifying sinfulness of mankind. And then second, parallel to that, the sovereign, powerful, faithful work of God to accomplish His promised plan of salvation. Now eventually, in Genesis chapter 12, we learn of God's promises being centered on a man named Abraham, who originally was called Abram and his offspring. And so I want you to hear what God says to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, because this is sort of the pivot point of the entire book that helps us understand everything that's going on. So we hear Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And then from here to the end of Genesis, God's covenant promise, which involves land, offspring, and blessing for the world, this covenant promise develops and it expands, first through Abraham, and then through Abraham's son Isaac, and then through Isaac's son Jacob, whom God also named Israel. And this is what brings us in just a moment to chapter 46. And so what we see then is that Genesis is the story of the beginnings of God's promise plan to bring his blessing of salvation to the world through the nation of Israel, the offspring of Abraham. 
And Genesis is thus foundational to understanding the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's foundational to understanding those first five books, but it's also foundational to understanding the rest of the entire Old Testament as well as the rest of the New Testament also. In other words, Genesis is foundational to understanding God's saving, redeeming work centered in Jesus Christ. Because in God's design, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, ushered in the new covenant, having perfectly fulfilled all that the nation of Israel failed to fulfill in the old covenant. Well, now on to chapters 46 and 47. And as we're going to see, these chapters teach us much about walking confidently with the God who provides. And so in chapter 46, uh, Jacob, with all of his people and possessions, is journeying from the land of Canaan, which is the land that God promised. He's journeying from that land to the land of Egypt. And he's recently learned that Joseph, his favored of 12 sons, whom Jacob presumed 22 years earlier was dead, Jacob has now learned that he's not only alive, but he has risen to the most powerful person in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And it's back in chapter 37 that we begin to hear the story of how God sovereignly brought Joseph to this place of power. And it is a powerful story. Well, now God is bringing, is sovereignly bringing Jacob's whole family to Egypt. And a severe famine in Canaan and ultimately in Egypt as well is is the context of how God is orchestrating all of this. And Jacob had begun uh, the journey uh, on his way to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph and to relocate there. But as we pick it up in chapter 46, he's come to a place called Beersheba, which is in the southernmost part of the land of Canaan, just before he would move into the area of Egypt. And he stopped there to worship God. And he's apparently filled with fear and anxiety about traveling on to Egypt. And so he asks the question, well, why would Jacob be afraid? And that's what God speaks to here at the beginning of chapter 46. Why would he be afraid? Well, there's no doubt many reasons. For starters, we're going to see in chapter 47 that Jacob is 130 years old at this time. And he's got lots of children, lots of grandchildren, and lots of possessions. And we can understand, I mean, what old person of of such an age as that wouldn't be afraid of a drastic change such as this? So that's probably one element of his fear. But also, many years earlier, Jacob had lived away from God's promised land in Canaan for some 20 years. But God brought him back to Canaan just as God had promised he would do when Jacob first left that land. So earlier in his life, he had been away for 20 years. He'd come back to the promised land. And no doubt, he's, he's probably apprehensive and afraid to leave this land of promise again, wondering if he's ever going to come back. And especially to go to the powerful pagan country of Egypt. 
And Jacob probably thought that what was him going would be contrary to the promises of God. And maybe there's some sense of fear that he's afraid that God's promise has somehow failed. But I think there's an even more fundamental reason that Jacob is afraid. And again, there's probably a mixture of factors. But I think most significantly, Jacob is afraid of disobeying God. He's afraid of disobeying God. He's afraid of stepping out on his own, as it were, presuming on God and putting his own will above God's will. And I'm constrained to believe this is why he stopped at Beersheba to seek the Lord and to worship Him and to wait on Him. He wants to know if his journey to Egypt is within God's will. And this really shows a a dramatic humility and a dramatic maturity in Jacob. Because if you know anything about Jacob and the things we learn earlier in Genesis about his life, this was not uh, his normal response and his normal disposition. In fact, everything that we learn about Jacob in Genesis, beginning with his birth, birth in chapter 25, shows him to be quite a scoundrel. It shows him to be a proud, selfish, scheming, deceiving, controlling manipulator. This is who Jacob was. He was addicted to trying to leverage circumstances and to use people for his own selfish advantage. But over many years and with much pain, God lovingly disciplined him. And God wrestled with him quite literally, as we're told at one place, and God broke him of his stubborn, self-willed pride. And so now as an old man, Jacob has begun to learn these lessons. And so he stops at Beersheba to worship and to seek the Lord and to clarify God's will for him. And I think that's what he was most afraid of, of of stepping outside of God's will and disobeying Him. And so how kindly and how richly does God provide for him? Now what I want to do, we're not going to read through all of chapter 46 and chapter 47. I'm going to summarize some parts of it as we move along. And I want to do so with three observations as we see what is here. First of all, we're going to look at what God says... Second of all, we're going to look at what God does. And then third, we're going to look at what God wants from us in light of these truths. What God says, what God does, and what God wants from us. So first of all, what God says to Jacob. And this is what we find in verses 2 through 4 that I read earlier. Verse 2, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And just notice how personal, how intimate and direct God is with Jacob. And so Jacob says, here I am. He's exhibiting a humility and an eagerness and a readiness to listen to what God has to say. And so verse 3, then God says, I am God, the God of your father. And with this statement, God is revealing his covenant identity. 
which expresses his eternal authority, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness. And then God says to him, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And this is a comforting command from God who perfectly knew the manifold fears that Jacob was experiencing. He's essentially saying to Jacob, Jacob, it is my will for you to go down to Egypt, so do not fear. And then God strengthens his comfort with rich and renewed promises as God goes on to explain. He says, for there, and notice the emphasis on what God is going to do in what God says, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I also I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And so what rich, what comforting and timely words these are for Jacob at this point in time. God is assuring the old man that he's to go down to Egypt. And so as Jacob is worshiping and seeking God, waiting on him, God speaks to calm Jacob's fears and to strengthen his faith. Now, understand this with what God says. These promises that he expresses to Jacob at this time, they flow, you see, from God's original promises to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, which uh, ultimately flow from the promises that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Those original promises that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12 were some 200 years prior to this time now with Jacob. And going all the way back to Genesis 3 and what God said in the garden, those promises were some 2,000 years prior to this time with Jacob. And you see what God is showing, what God is revealing, what God is saying is that His promises have not changed. And His purposes have not changed. Now it's interesting, not only are those reference points going back to Abraham, going back to the garden, but even in Jacob's own life, there were previous times that God had spoken to him and that God had given promises. The first of these we find back in chapter 28, and this is more than 50 years prior to this event in chapter 46, and it's when Jacob first fled the land of Canaan to go to another area called Paddan Aram. And God appeared to Jacob at that time, Genesis 28, and listen to what he says, and this is from verses 13 to 15 in chapter 28. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so we hear echoes of those very promises in chapter 46. But then again, now roughly 20 years after what we hear there in chapter 28, roughly 20 years later in chapter 35, 
after God has now appeared to Jacob again and is telling him to go back to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, listen to what we hear God say. This is chapter 35, verses 10 to 12. God says to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now again, we we hear God's promises in chapter 38. Then some 20 years later, we hear them in chapter 35. And then another uh, 30 plus years later, we hear them again in chapter 46. And what we see is that God's promises are unchanging. And in Jacob's experience, these promises have not yet been fulfilled. And so you see what God is doing is comforting him, reminding him, encouraging him that God's promises haven't changed even though Jacob has yet to see the fulfillment of it. And he wants him to continue to go on to Egypt. And so now in chapter 46, again this is now more than 30 years after chapter 35, God reinforces these promises with Jacob. I want you to notice back here in chapter 46 again, the heart of God's promise is really what he says in verse 4, that he will be with Jacob. He will be with him. And he had, the, he had said the same thing all the way back in chapter 28, more than 50 years earlier. The point is, is that God had always been with Jacob. And if you took time to read all the things that go on in Jacob's life and in his family, and it's a mess all the way from chapter 28 all the way to chapter 46, yet God is with him all the way. And even as God is loving and keeping and breaking and maturing Jacob, God is also fulfilling his promises through Jacob. And so we see God at work But he wants him to know that he has never left him. And he will continue to be with him even as he goes to Egypt. And he's helping him understand that Jacob's only need was always God. His only need was always God. And Jacob had slowly, painfully learned to trust and obey God. And learned to walk confidently with this God who would provide for him. And so, in chapter 46, after God speaks to him at Beersheba, Jacob journeys on to Egypt in faith. God has comforted him, God has strengthened him, and God has renewed his purposes and promises, and Jacob moves on. And so this is what we see God doing, and this is what we see him saying. And so really everything that continues on in the rest of chapter 46 and through chapter 47, while it involves a lot of people and a lot of events, it's about what God is doing in fulfilling his purposes and his promises through Jacob. So we see first of all what God says in verses 1 to 4. Well, the rest of chapter 46 and 47 are about what God does. And I want to just summarize a good bit of it. I'm going to read a few portions here and there. But just to summarize what we see God doing as Jacob steps out in faith. 
So first of all, in verses 5 to 25 of chapter 46, we have a lengthy record of all of the children and the grandchildren and possessions that Jacob took with him to Egypt. And what's emphasized here is that Jacob took everything. He took everyone. He was completely relocating to Egypt. And this is summarized then with what we hear in verses 26 and 27. It says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's wives, sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. So all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now this is intriguing because it's been more than 200 years since God's original promises to Abraham. And Abraham's offspring through Jacob now numbered a meager 70 people. I don't know how many of us are here today, but it's a little bit less than, than what's here today. It's, it's not a giant group at all. A meager 70 people, and, and these people are a small, unknown, nomadic tribe of lowly shepherds. So in other words, hardly the great nation that God had promised to Jacob. But God fulfills His promises in His way and in His time. And He's at work in all of this. Well, then in verses 28 through 30 of chapter 46, we read of the emotional reunion of Jacob with Joseph. And so verse 28, He, Jacob, had sent Judah, another one of his sons, ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. uh, And they came into the land of Goshen, which is one of the areas in Egypt. Verse 29, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are alive. And we can only imagine the intense emotion of both men in this reunion. Again, Jacob has been believing for some 22 years that this favored son of his is dead. And Joseph suffered all kinds of injustices during those years as we read about in the earlier portions prior to chapter 46. And so when Jacob says what he says, let me now die, he's saying that this is the greatest joy that he could ever experience. And because of that, he's ready for his life to end. And we can just imagine both men crying uncontrollably because of the joy of being reunited after all these years and with all that has transpired. Well then, following this reunion in verse 31 to the end of chapter 46, Joseph then prepares both Jacob and his brothers to appear before Pharaoh. And then in the beginning of chapter 47, we read about Joseph taking five of his brothers to go before Pharaoh and to identify themselves as shepherds and to formally ask Pharaoh to let them dwell in the land of Goshen in Egypt. 
And Pharaoh responds by showing great favor to them, no doubt because of Joseph. And he directs Joseph to have them settle in the best of the land and to put any of his brothers who are able to put them in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. And then after this, in verses 7 to 10, uh, we read of Jacob appearing before Pharaoh. And let me just read this too because it has significance So we read in verse 7, chapter 47, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father, stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Now it's interesting here that twice at the beginning of the narrative in verse 7 and then at the end in verse 10, we're told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And this is far more than just a common greeting. We're to understand this blessing in view of God's promises and in despite of the fact that Jacob is a lowly, unknown shepherd standing before Pharaoh who was the most powerful, exalted man in the world at the time. So what you have is this this puzzling scene of this nobody standing in front of a massive somebody, if you will, and the nobody is blessing the somebody. We think it should be the other way around. But what Jacob is doing in blessing Pharaoh is he is fulfilling God's covenant purpose that he knew and understood for him to bless other nations. And this ultimately anticipates the greater, fuller blessing of God through Jesus Christ in bringing salvation to the nations in and through Jesus. Well, then with Jacob's commentary on the days of his life in response to what Pharaoh had asked him, and he says uh, his days were few and evil and not as long as the life of his fathers, he's perhaps expressing here a a sense of deep humility and and even remorse over his prior sins and all of the consequences that had come from his prior sins. But even within this, we see God's abundant mercy and provision because we're then told in verses 11 and 12, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And so do you see this is God's grace and mercy and provision in the midst of this famine, this severe famine that was happening in Canaan and that was unfolding more and more in Egypt. God is nonetheless, through Joseph, through Pharaoh, providing for Jacob and his entire tribe. Abundantly so. Well, it's interesting. Then in verses 13 through 26 of chapter 47, we're told of Joseph's management of Egypt 
and the Egyptians during the remaining five years of severe famine that impacted both Egypt and Canaan. And the result of his management was that all of the Egyptians and all of their lands became the possession of Pharaoh except for the land of the priests, we're told. And I think the reason that this portion of the narrative is included is to show us by way of contrast what's happening in the experience of the Egyptians within this famine. They and their lands become the possession of Pharaoh. But in contrast, what's happening with God's people in the midst of the famine? They're being preserved. They're being protected. They're being abundantly provided for, just as God had promised. And he's not only providing for them and protecting them, but in so doing, he's preserving and continuing to advance his promised purpose through them. And so the summary that we read in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 47, it emphasizes this and and notice the covenant promise language. So look at verse 27 of of chapter 47. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. And there's the covenant language. They were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. And then verse 28, we're told, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And what we're going to read following this and get into next week is what transpires during these 17 years leading up to and including the death of Jacob. And by the way, it's worth noting that after Jacob dies, it would be 413 more years before God's promised people, the nation of Israel, would once again dwell in the land of Canaan. And this is in fulfillment of what God had actually promised to Abraham back in chapter 15. We won't look there, but he had let them know that that, that his people, his offspring, would ultimately be enslaved in Egypt for what would be 400, more than 400 years. And what happens during those 400 years? Well, they multiply. And by the time they leave in the great exodus that we read about in in the book of Exodus, they're in excess of 2 million people. So during this time, God has his purposes for them to multiply and to grow. Well, in all of these events, and this winds down to what we want to see for us, in all these events involving Jacob, Joseph, his 11 brothers, Pharaoh, the land of Canaan, the land of Egypt, and the severe famine that is taking place, What God is revealing for us to both hear and to see is what he has said and what he is doing. In other words, he wants us to hear with clarity what he has said and what he still says. That his covenant promises and commands, which flow from his gracious purpose to bless undeserving sinners like us with salvation, these are still present. And the covenant promises and commands that we see in their infancy here in the book of Genesis, they come to full fruition in Jesus Christ and in the new covenant. 
Because it's through Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, crucified, risen, exalted, and coming again, that all of God's blessings, blessings such as redemption, forgiveness, cleansing, reconciliation, adoption, eternal life, the full scope of salvation, those blessings are poured out in Christ on those who believe on Christ. And this is all seeing these matters in their, in their infancy as they are born in the book of Genesis. And so God wants us to hear this. And he also wants us to see with clarity what he has done and what he is still doing to preserve his promises. To see the working of his powerful providences in all of these events in chapters 46 and 47. All the circumstances, all the situations we find in his dealings with with Jacob and his family, as we've seen earlier in the book of Genesis. He wants us to see his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people in spite of their sins, in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their fears and anxieties and enemies and, and needs and problems. He wants us to see that his steadfast love and his faithfulness does not cease He wants us to see His gracious and abundant provision for His people, constantly providing for every spiritual and every physical need. And He wants us to see the power of His permanent and unchanging presence with His people. He never left Jacob and He never leaves any of His people. And we have many promises to that end throughout Scripture. He's always present, leading, guiding, providing, comforting, protecting, teaching, correcting, disciplining, assuring, but in it all, never, ever leaving. That's what God wants us to see. He wants us to hear and see all that He says, all that He is doing, beloved, in order to build, in order to strengthen our faith in Him in order to multiply our hope-filled endurance in walking confidently with Him, in trusting Him to provide what He has promised in the particularities, in the specifics of our own lives and in our own circumstances. In fact, listen to what God says through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says, whatever was written in former days, this was include the entire Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God was not finished with Jacob and his family because God was not finished with his promises. And the same is true for all of his people. He is faithful to fulfill the work that He has started in us. Paul says also in Philippians 1 verse 6. So we've seen in chapters 46 and 47 what God says. We've seen something of what God does in His faithful provision for Jacob and his family. This all leads to the third observation that we'll end with. What is it that God wants from us in all of this? In other words, what is he saying to you and I today in these truths? I think the main exhortation that comes out of chapters 46 and 47, I think the main lesson is this. Our only need always is God. 
Our only need always is God. Now, if we took time to find out from every single one of us what you would identify, what I would identify as my needs as we walked in this morning, uh, we would be here a long, long time, right? We'd think of all kinds of spiritual needs, physical needs, relational needs, just, just myriads of needs. But I believe the exhortation God has for us is to come back to this central truth that our only fundamental need always is God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wills for us to walk confidently and submissively with Him, being assured that He will provide for our every spiritual and physical need. And again, what God essentially says to Jacob at the beginning of chapter 46 is, I am all you need. Therefore, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Trust my promises. Obey my commands. Walk confidently with me because I'll provide for you. I will never leave you. And this is what God wants from us, beloved. In faith, to worship and to seek Him, being convinced that He is who He reveals Himself to be, and He will do what He has revealed Himself to do. He will fulfill His purposes, and our only need always is Him. In the twilight of Jacob's life, he was beginning to learn this lesson. And I wonder for myself, I wonder for the rest of us, how well we're learning this lesson. To walk confidently with God by faith, convinced that He is always your only need, means to trust and to obey what God has said in His Word. We have so much more of His Word than what Jacob had. He's given us the fullness of His revelation and He still speaks through what He has spoken in His Word. And so it means not to rely on our own understanding And to not be controlled, not give ourselves to be controlled by the many fears and anxieties and concerns that we are easily beset with in this life. It means to go to God often in prayer, worshiping Him as Jacob did, seeking His will, seeking His help, seeking His guidance continually, and His provision continually. And to trust only Him means to trust His promises and His commands and and within all of the providential and even often painful circumstances that He ordains in our lives. It means to recognize and to confess our sins when we are guilty and to be assured that in Jesus He has completely forgiven and cleansed us from our sin, even as we so frequently are called to confess Friends, remember, don't be like Jacob in the earlier years of his life. One who was given over to being proud and self-willed and scheming, deceiving, controlling and manipulating, plotting and using others to get what he wanted in his way and in his time. Don't be like that. Be like Jacob as an old man, seeking God and trusting only him and his provision. This is the essence of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33, the passage we heard read earlier. Near the end of that passage when he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Jesus is exhorting a matter of priority. Don't seek all of these things, the the basic things of our lives, the things we so easily get encumbered with, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, where we're going to live, what we're going to wear, and the host of things that tie into all of that. He says, no, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We're to know God through faith in Jesus, trust Him, obey Him, rely on Him, enjoy Him, and proclaim Him to others. We're to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, confident that He'll provide everything that we need as we do that. And to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness begins with praying Seeking the Lord in prayer, worshiping Him, even as Jesus taught us to pray earlier in Matthew chapter 6. You're familiar with that prayer. Jesus isn't just giving a formula, but He's expressing a, what is to be a continual disposition of heart that is seeking God with reverence and dependence. And you probably know the words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Beloved, that is a disposition of heart that is worshiping the Lord, confidently trusting Him to provide all that is needed. And may God help us so to walk with Him assured that he is only all we need all the time. And let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your faithful word. And even as you spoke to Jacob, as he worshiped you there at Beersheba, Father, we know you continue to speak through your word, the very things that we need when we need them. And the issue is never your lack of speaking, it is often our lack of hearing, our lack of humbly listening and responding. We pray that you would help us to walk confidently with you in accordance with your word, trusting your promises, submitting to your commands, living in the life that you have given in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we might know the fullness of your provision in him. Not only all the spiritual blessings that you have given through Jesus, but also all of the material, physical things that we need day by day. Our daily bread. So please help us to that end that we might bring honor and glory to you. That we might know your blessing and thereby to be a blessing to others for the sake of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.